Well, isn't that special? 2017 has been like a bonus year for political junkies with five, count them, five special elections to replace House members who either left to serve in President Donald Trump's cabinet or in the case of one Democrat to be Attorney General of California. The onus was on Republicans to defend four of the five seats, and Democrats found a reason to get into various states of excitedom over each one of them. But in the end, after the last vote was tallied, we're right where we were at the beginning of the year. 241 Republicans, 194 Democrats in the United States House. They both held serve. It's the status quo. And now we're going to talk about what it all means for the congressional agenda and the 2018 elections on CQ Roll Call's The Big Story podcast. Joining me today is Simone Pathé, Roll Call's senior political writer who reported on the ground from the most recent elections in Georgia and South Carolina. Welcome, Simone. Hello. Are you jet lagged? Of course, it's not really a jet lag. You flew from Atlanta this morning after the election. So you can't be so jet lagged, right? But maybe sleep deprived. Sleep deprived after staying up all night. Jet lagged, not so much. So uh, the the election that you came from, you were in Georgia. You were in Georgia's 6th District. Mm-hmm. The contest between John Ossoff and Karen Hendel. Karen Hendel, the Republican, won that race. Uh, she won by... Not not so much a comfortable margin, but certainly a, a, a larger margin than a lot of political handicappers were thinking. What was it like being there on the ground? You went to the John Ossoff's, what he hoped would be his election night victory party, uh, for which a lot of Democrats had, had been very excited about his chances of winning in this seat. Uh, Donald Trump barely won it. Uh, it's the seat of Tom Price, who's now the HHS secretary in the Trump cabinet. And we were up to about 50 million bucks, I think, is the most expensive house race in history. What was it like being there on the ground? Yeah, well, as you know, the Ossoff campaign had generated a huge amount of buzz, a lot of enthusiasm from the grassroots, even for moderates and independents in Georgia's 6th District who were coming out to canvas up through that last day. Um, Everyone that I spoke to on the campaign was just really excited and really positive. And honestly, that was pretty much the mood. in the in the room in the ballroom last night for for much of it occasionally you know when when returns would be flashed on the screen from CNN and, and they were positive for Handel you would hear some booing in the crowd it wasn't until CNN actually called the race for Handel that you heard just a gasp was let out in unison <laughs> across the room but it wasn't i don't know maybe 2 minutes after that, that they pumped the music right back on and the crowd kept on drinking and dancing and it, it took a little bit longer i think for the news to kind of sink in and then you did see some folks hugging each other. Didn't see a lot of tears, but I heard there were some. Uh, and folks really did linger for a long time. There was a reluctance to let this moment go, to say goodbye to what had been a really energetic chapter for, for a lot of people who were looking for some sort of victory after Donald Trump's win last fall. As you said, a lot of it, the people were paying attention to this race. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, at, at one point, some of the local Georgia television stations like ran out of ad space. They had to yeah. add programming for more yeah. ads for political ads. So Georgia 6 is often described as Atlanta or Atlanta suburbs. But what exactly does that mean? I mean, we have it's a fairly decentralized place. It's it's a fairly wealthy, well-off place. What was it like being on the ground there before Election Day or during Election Day? Did it seem like you were you were in the middle of an election? Where Was it like sort of this impassioned thing or was it just another kind of leafy suburb? <laughs> Um, there were signs everywhere. Also signs, particularly just because they have more people to really blanket these neighborhoods. But a lot of Karen Handel signs yesterday as well. I saw a truck driving in front of me in the rain yesterday that had a big banner. It said, hold Donald Trump accountable. It was paid for by the Ossoff campaign, reminding folks that yesterday was election day. 
everyone I knew was aware that Election Day was coming simply because the ads had been running nonstop. Remember, this was the second go around after the primary in April. So everyone was just ready for it to be over. But you were also in South Carolina. There was a, there was a, an election in South Carolina mm-hmm. last night, too, to replace Mick Mulvaney, who's now the Office of Management and Budget Director in, in the Trump uh, cabinet. Uh, what was that? It was a little bit different atmosphere there, right? <laughs> Huge contrast. This was kind of the sleeper race. And indeed, the results last night really bore that out. You know, it was a closer margin than even Georgia, mm-hmm. which is not something that any of us expected. I was going around with Archie Purnell, who is the Democrat in the race, and he had Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio down stumping with him. I was the only reporter there. There wasn't even local press. <laughs> now, and w- one of the things I find interesting, we're, and we're going to get into some of the issues that people talked about on, on the trail that you saw, but just from a, from a you know, the, the political standpoint, the, the Democrats thought that Georgia was a test case for them because it was, it's a highly educated suburb, it's diverse, and they thought that they could break through, and, and Trump was, was kind of soft. His, his support there was kind of soft. So this was a test case, and, and one of the reasons that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and also outside groups invested. It also spooked re- national Republicans, and they, they invested in it so because they wanted to, obviously didn't want to lose th- that seat. Now... One thing that I thought it was interesting about the seat that that Ralph Norman won. I mean, he had, he'd run before, uh, failed to to beat John Spratt in this in this race, who's a Democrat, uh, and then and then Mulvaney won the seat in in 2010 again, knocking off Spratt. But the this is not really that much different. I mean, when people think South Carolina, they probably have an image in their head, but this is almost like North Carolina. This is the this are this is like the the Charlotte suburbs in a way, right? I mean, why wouldn't Democrats invest in this place also because w- what they may have lacked in like the higher education attainment level in in South Carolina, they could have made up possibly in the fact that there are more African Americans and minorities in there. I mean, Mick Mulvaney was learning to speak Spanish uh, when he was a house member because he saw how much the the his district was changing. So you're right. This is definitely a bedroom community for Charlotte. There are a lot of very affluent suburban areas. Um, I was in a very posh gated community on Saturday morning that was very Republican leaning, very supportive of Norman. But you also, as you mentioned, you have a strong African-American population. The flip side of that is that those folks usually don't turn out to vote as much. So and particularly in special elections. In particularly in special elections and midterms as well. And so the investment that you saw from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was almost experimental in terms of, of trying to test different ways of, of turning out the African-American vote and different ways of messaging that would appeal to them to see what would work going into 2018. Um, so they thought that it would be less about actually turning them out for this election, mm-hmm. not that, that, that they didn't want to, but that the long-term goal was looking ahead to 2018. The polling that I had heard and saw from Democrats never showed the race as close as it ended up being. Um, so that's a whole other question we can talk about is mm-hmm. polling. Um, and I haven't had a chance to look at turnout from what I saw during the day yesterday. It was actually quite low. So I don't know if it's just that a lot of Republicans didn't turn out because they thought it wasn't all that competitive. So to, to wrap up the other three races from this special election season in, in Montana, there was an at-large race to replace uh, Ryan Sinke, who's the Interior Secretary. Greg Gianforti won that race against Democrat Rob Quist. Rob Quist was kind of in this Bernie Sanders sort mm-hmm. of insurgent mode. He was a banjo player, right, you know, he, you know, like yeah. the and he he was very folksy, you know, great mustache and hat and all this kind of stuff. Greg Gianforti assaulted a, a reporter the night before the election, but still <laughs> managed to get himself elected to Congress. And is now uh, here in Washington. 
yeah, yeah, with a uh, with a record, <laughs> uh, and the DC the D triple Z says trolling him, saying uh, you know you can't you can't be an Uber driver <laughs> and things like this. Uh, in Kansas, Ron Estes uh, won won the race uh, for. Uh, to replace Mike Pompeo, who's the CIA director, Bo- both at Montana and and Kansas, like South Carolina, closer than people thought it, it could be, but still Democrats came up short. The fifth race is in California, where Jimmy Gomez won the the seat of Javier Becerra, uh, and easily, uh, and it was it was always going to be a Democrat. There were two Democrats running, so so we've completed the special election picture. What about some of the issues? Because one, I mean, one thing that it seems that a lot of people in Washington. We're looking at is what was it? What is this going to mean for the agenda? And right now, the agenda is is as far as we can tell, the only thing people seem to be talking about, at least on Capitol Hill, is healthcare. How much did healthcare come up in your travels when you were talking to people among the candidates, among any kind of messaging? What 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 say thou about healthcare? <laughs> it's certainly something that Democrats are talking about. Something they're aware of in South Carolina, especially in terms of turning out the African American vote. I was told that this was issue number one. Um, it's what Archie Purnell needed to be talking about, and he was, but he probably could have talked about it even more. In Georgia, by contrast, um, it was less of an issue. Remember that John Ossoff he started out his campaign with a slogan something like make trump furious he slowly backed off away from that and and talked more about um you know not sending a career politician to washington trying to send a different message to washington bringing people together a much more uh, moderate less quote-unquote radical vision of contesting the president um, healthcare didn't make it into any of the ads that National Democrats ran. Their message was continually about Karen Handel being a career politician. They would use this B-roll of a Lexus SUV to invoke um, some of the things she did as Secretary of State, allegedly, you know, buying this vehicle with taxpayer money, et cetera, really hammering in on that message. And you heard a lot less about healthcare, except from Ossoff in the the extent of his attacks on Karen Handel for her time at the Susan G. Komen Foundation when she cut off financial ties to Planned Parenthood. Which is almost, I mean, not that abortion doesn't, in, you know, kind of bring forth strong emotions, but like what they're talking about, what, what's going on right now in Congress is is a rewrite of the health insurance system mm-hmm. um, for millions of people uh, mm-hmm. in, in the country. And that didn't that message didn't break through. It didn't. You know, it, the, the bill itself, it came up in debates, it came up on the trail. But in terms of, you know, the $50 million that we've heard so much about, much of it was spent on the airwaves. That was not a central theme at all. And Handel, like, especially toward the end, she embraced the president, the, you know, President Donald Trump, like he, he uh, sent out tweets in support of her, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, he had his surrogate sort of fan out. Uh, in, in support of her. And she didn't duck away. You know, the, I mean, there, there were some signs that she wasn't particularly cuddly uh, w- w- at, at the beginning of the race. But once it got down to the last couple of weeks, I mean, she kind of embraced the, the you know, the, the support from the White House, uh, whereas Ossoff didn't really talk about the White House at all. He didn't talk about Donald Trump at all. Some I've seen, you know, some people are complaining that he didn't, you know, maintain this, be be mad, you know, be, you know, like angry. You know, what do you... What do you see as as the lesson that some Democrats may learn? Because it seems like we we're we're seeing the same camps that came out of the presidential election between mm-hmm. the Hillary and the Bernie people. Right, and, and Parnell in South Carolina, who, as we said, actually did a little bit better. 
marginally, he did talk a lot more about Trump um, and he accused... In his tax attorney way, or <laughs> yeah. his, 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 his accountant way of uh, look, right. looking side-eye at uh, Donald Trump, you know. <laughs> in one of his emails, he even called his opponent a clone, a Donald Trump clone. That is kind of rhetoric that you would not necessarily have heard from John Ossoff on the trail. Um I think what's interesting is to consider who is the bigger boogeyman in a lot of these races. In Georgia, we saw it was Nancy Pelosi. It wasn't Donald Trump. I mean, everyone thought that Karen Handel would want to keep him at bay with a 10-foot pole because he had underperformed Republicans in this district. But Republican outside groups, especially congressional leadership fund, they went all in on the Nancy Pelosi attack. And at the end of the day, she was almost the bigger figure in this race than John Ossoff was. It's almost like being back in 2010. Uh, I mean, wh- or any wh- other election. <laughs> and and did you see from from the from your time on the trail? Did you see that this this tying people to Nancy Pelosi, tying John Ossoff in in this case to Nancy Pelosi, because we saw it a little bit in Montana too? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it working? Does it do Republicans still get? agitated about thinking about Nancy Pelosi running things. Yeah, I think it's it's not necessarily her personally, but it's about what they think she stands for. Um, and the messaging from Republicans is about government intervention, regulations, all of that kind of hampering folks' economic viability in terms of their bread and butter kitchen table issues. That all resonates with a lot of the Republican voters, at least, that I spoke with. Now, one thing that was interesting is that Nancy Pelosi, even though she was a figure, she, or at least she was part of the rhetoric you know, in, in the campaign in Georgia, she was far away. I mean, she, oh, did, yeah. she didn't intervene. I mean, she probably, she, you know, I'm, I'm guessing she probably raised money or, or like right. had, had, you know, it was definitely supportive of John Ossoff. She would obviously welcome another Democrat into her caucus in the House. Uh, she didn't go to Georgia, whereas several, uh, several House Democrats went to Georgia. However, like Tim Ryan, as you, as you mentioned, did go to South Carolina and did mm-hmm. campaign with, with Archie Parnell. Tim Ryan also took on Nancy Pelosi in the, in the, the race for to be the minority leader in the current Congress, came up short. Uh, but it, it was a it wasn't sort of it wasn't a nasty contest necessarily between Ryan, between Tim Ryan and, and Nancy Pelosi. But it seems to be this very symbolic thing that like here, the guy who challenged her was on the ground and she was not. Right. Um, A lot of members here in Washington who are part of the DCCC leadership, they weren't paying attention to this race at all. They told me they didn't even know who Archie Parnell was, some of them. Um, But here, as you say, you have Tim Ryan, who was connected through the former state Democratic Party chair to Parnell, wanted to get down there to South Carolina. He was also in Iowa, so who knows if he has other (laughs) ambitions. Um, But you're right. He has a very different approach to running the party. He thinks that the party needs to be in country clubs. He was in a country club Saturday morning trying to speak to moderate Democrats and some conservative Republicans in a way that the Democratic message might appeal to those people talking about Archie Parnell's business background. Um, So for him, making economic issues more um, in the foreground is a, a more winning message for Democrats. It's definitely going to be interesting because now as we start, you know, kind of in earnest the 2018 midterm election cycle, which most people do think that there is at least a chance that that the House is in play. We start this five months later after, the, after we started with the same number of, of as, as I mentioned in the at the beginning, 241 Republicans, 194, you know, Democrats. It's, it's 24 seats you have to flip in order to, for it to be uh, to change, change the majority. So we've got uh, we. we we start at ground zero again or, or, or square one again. We do. And according to DCC Chairman Ben Ruhan, the House is in play today. So we'll see. Could be an exciting year. We shall see. <laughs> Simone, thank you so much for, for joining us in the Big Story podcast. I always love to get these updates from the road. Uh, there, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. 
I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Thanks for listening.